the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. There's a Sunday edition as well, if you didn't know. Eight till midnight tomorrow night, and a heads up for tomorrow night. We're having a look at Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. We're not going to play the whole thing and uh, drive you away with this awful classical music, but, man, it's just such a cracking thing. Little segments, and described by Captain Oboe, uh, because the Auckland Philharmonia are having a lash at the Seventh Symphony. Go along and see it. There's nothing like a live orchestra. So I thought I'd grab Mr. Oboe, and he's going to walk us through uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, why it's such a cracker, and a bit about Beethoven himself. A cantankerous person, difficult to be with. Then again, I think nice is overrated. Ewan McCabe is uh, back tomorrow night, too, with a uh, bit more of a chat about the World Cup. Oh! I got annoyed. I got annoyed today when I watched the replay with the news blackout of Uruguay taking on France. And then uh, Brazil taking on Belgium. Now, Brazil getting knocked out. And the commentator said, oh, I should have recorded it, but I just thought of it now. Um, so I didn't bring it in. Brazil go out. The world's most successful football side. False, 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 false. They aren't. It's actually Uruguay. I know I've described this on Sunday, but I'll tell you now because you're here and you're listening. Okay, uh, Uruguay, 20 world titles, none of them insignificant. Um, they, they won Copa America, the South American Cup, 15 times more than any other nation. Population, 3.3 million. Wow. I think that makes them the most overachieving sporting nation on the earth. Sad to see such a, a passionate um, country going out of the World Cup. Never mind, they did pretty well. They couldn't get anywhere without Cavani, I suppose. But I'll stop talking about details in football and we'll get on with the weekend variety wireless, huh? snuggled up warm or enjoying whatever you're doing. Hopefully this will be the cherry on top. We've got lots of science this hour as usual. Astronomy coming up with uh, Grant Christie. Some Pluto news. And another Chinese thing about to fall out of the sky. Next up, science report with Sean Handy. Good evening. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Sean Hendy with us for our science report this week. Physicist from Auckland University and always good to remind people, uh, the author of Silencing Science. Hello, Sean. Hi, Graham. How are you? Good, good. Okay, let's talk about this genetically modified meat. Uh, it may be a way of, I don't know, saving the planet, assuaging the proclivities of the vegetarian. Um, it, it's, it's a long way from being everywhere, but um, people are having a go. Yeah, well, that, yeah, and of course it uh, came to light this week with Air, Air New Zealand serving that uh, the Impossible Burger. Yeah. Um, only, only in business, 
pass, of course. Um, but still very interesting to see one of these synthetic meat products um, or meat substitutes, really, um, uh, you know, being served on, on our national airline. And, of course, that did, that did upset a few politicians. Um, but let me, let me just pull you back on one thing, um, on the genetic modification. Um, so so it has been people have been claiming it's genetically modified meat, um, but it's kind of it's a little bit more subtle than that. Um, it's it's one of the molecules that they've put in the meat, uh, in the in the product, in the substitute, um, uh, that that's supposed to make it taste like meat, um, and, and that has been produced by genetically modified yeast. So uh-huh. it's not that the it's not that the product itself is genetically modified. It's just that one of the molecules that, that's in the product has been made by a genetically modified uh, organism. Okay. So it's a little, a little bit different. So you're not actually chomping down on um, on genetically modified organisms. Okay, I understand now. Um, so if anyone does have a problem with that, it's a problem with the chemical that comes from a genetically modified bacteria, right? Yeah, no, that's that's right. And we're sort of going to gonna increasingly see this. You know, this is how we're going to encounter genetic modification in the future. I mean, we already some medicines and, and drugs are produced by genetically modified organisms. Um, and so you're not ingesting, you know, when you take the medicine or the drug, you're not ingesting the, the genetically modified organism itself. You're just um, ingesting a, a, a product from that organism. And, of course, this can be a really efficient way of, of making things that are otherwise very expensive. Um, you know, drugs that, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to afford by using genetically modified organisms. Um, we can produce them much more efficiently um, in greater quantities, and that, that, that makes them cheaper. So we're going to increasingly see this, I think. Um, yeah. and, and I guess if we're going to continue to object, well, that, that's, yeah, you know, I think it's good to do it on the basis of understanding what, what we're uh, objecting to. Yeah, and why one would object. Uh, put, yeah. your, put your case clearly and, and make it a, a reasonable argument. Um, yeah. I, I, just one thing about this genetic... Li- sorry. One thing about, about this super meat, this um, yep. this meat that doesn't come from an animal, or let's say yep. a cow. Let's just use a yep. cow. Um, yep. It's it, it. People are talking it up like we could save the planet. Uh, won't be saving farmers, but um, yeah. it could save the planet because it, you know we could. It takes a lot of energy and it's wasteful to um, turn grass into a cow and then eat the cow. Um, yep. So, but. We're a long, long, long way away from making any impact on that particular um, uh, energy uh, path, aren't we? Yeah, so these technologies are still, you know, especially this impossible burger technology, it's still not, you know, it's still relatively energy inefficient. Yeah. um, And also quite expensive, so it's not going to be the sort of thing that replaces your McDonald's patty um, anytime soon. But, you know... um, uh, the, the fact is that costs are coming down. There's a lot of venture capital now uh, going into into companies, um, into the biotechnology of, of manufacturing meat substitutes this way. And so, you know, it's it's, it's probably going to be honest in a few years. It's going to be a, an option that, that many of us will get to try in some way um, in, in the next few years. And, of course, there's some Kiwi companies getting involved in this as well. It's not just it's not just American um, uh, Silicon Valley Startups that are doing this, there are New Zealand companies doing it, and and yeah, in principle, right? If we can if we can master the technology, then then yes, it, it, it could be a, a way of uh, of combating uh, climate change, for example, because yeah, you know, simply put, farming farming producing meat um, and via traditional farming is 
greenhouse gas intensive and energy intensive. Um, and if you can, if you can do this in other ways, uh, from plant-based materials, uh, then um, you know that that's going to be better for the environment. Okay, let's move on to uh, a bot of a sort. Um, yeah. This is something, uh, a, a computer which is going to analyse keywords in parliament debates and find yep. out what the issues are. Yeah, so this is, this is actually some work done by some um, students in Te Punaha Matatini. Um, so, so I'm blowing, blowing our, our trumpet here. Um, but I actually think it's pretty cool what they've done. Um, you know, Hansard. So Hansard's the record of everything that's said in Parliament. Um, so when you know when you see the MPs slinging insults back and forth at one another and um, getting kicked out of Parliament, etc., that that's all being taken down. That's all been carefully noted. Um, and these days, Parliament is producing that digitally so that it can be machine read. And so that's what our students decided to do. They um, they uh, wrote some software to to basically figure out. Um, what politicians were talking about? What was the, what were the topics that they were devoting their energy to? Um, and they they applied it to 12 years of of Hansard. Um, so they looked at the the last two terms of the Clark government and the first two terms of the Key government, um, and just you know looked at, at at what politicians were up to. What were they what were they saying? Um, and and so the results have just come out. They were pu- published last week, um, and it's fascinating actually. It re- really gives some insight into the strategies that that politicians use um, to control uh, the debate in Parliament. How does it reflect the strategies rather than just what the words are that are used, how often and when? Yeah, so, so, so one, of the th- one of the things I, th- I thought was really interesting is just um, about the differences between what, what, you, what you talk about when you're in opposition and what you talk about when you're in, um, when you're in government. Um, I mean, the first thing is that actually when you're in government, you try and say very little, <laughs> um, and when you're in opposition, you try and say as much as possible. Yeah. And, and it doesn't doesn't matter whether you're Labour or National, <laughs> that swaps over. Um, so uh, so that was quite interesting to see to see that the that really you know it's the opposition that that domin- that does the most talking. How amusingly um, revealing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, um, the the other thing we saw, uh, well, a couple couple of other things we saw was just around. Um, uh, the the uh, discussion of housing, um, so of course it became a big issue during the, the key government. But really interestingly, they they didn't want to talk about it. Um, so so while the opposition started talking about housing a lot, um, and that grew over time, um, the the uh, the national party did not respond. And so their mention, their discussion of housing topics, um, just just didn't increase at all. Oh, you can actually s- practically yeah. see them creeping away from the subject. That's right. Yeah. So that was that was quite interesting, and then I think the third thing we saw was just um, was a, you could either think of this as polarisation um, of the debate or kind of staying on message. So so back in the during the Clark government, you used to see groups of politicians of all parties talking about particular topics. So you'd see them, you know, you'd see a group of MPs and they might be talking about the economy, mm. and that that that. Those MPs would be Labour MPs, National MPs, and Green MPs. You know, there'd be a, a real spread. And then over the key during the key government, um, we saw that the, the National Party people all started saying the same things. <laughs> so they were sticking to talking points, ah. uh, we think, um, and and all staying on message. And so using that as a strategy, um, you know, first of all avoiding housing um, uh, to to control the debate. So they weren't being drawn out, and and the kind of discussions that perhaps you saw under the Clark government weren't 
taking place. So um, you could, we'll be interested to see how that, you know, how the current government, which is of course quite a, an interesting coalition of different parties, whether we kind of return to how it used to be, uh, because it's, you know, just my impression is that the current government is less, isn't, isn't as disciplined um, in, its, in, in the way it talks. And so it'll be interesting to see whether our, whether the software that we've got um, shows that that's actually the case or whether it's just just my impression of what's going on. Right. With the readout from the key t- uh, time, it's like it points to the fact that, oh, there must have been a memo. There's a, yeah. there's, there's a gap. Yeah. There's a memo-shaped gap. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> yep, yep. Someone, someone was issuing, issuing instructions. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I think it's uh, having talked to a few um, political journalists about this. You know, that Stephen Joyce was actually very, um, very good at, at, at shaping talking points for yeah. MPs. Maybe it was a Stephen uh, Joyce-shaped gap. So there we go. Yeah, I think, I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, with something like this, I can envisage in the future, uh, maybe in the very near future, on a political program, you'd actually have something akin to the weather. Here's Bob with the um, Hansard bot stats. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's we've, very possible. We've got and incoming actually, education here, and law yeah. and order is making it there. Yeah, yeah, no, that, absolutely. I think that's that's something that um, uh, the, the definitely the, the, the students that, that have built this are thinking about that kind of tool. Could you could you make it a real time yeah. tool that but uh, you know maybe alerted you when and, um, when when politicians started talking about a topic that you were interested in? Because let's face it, you don't want to sit and listen to politicians all the time. You want to, you want to do them in short short doses. Um, so maybe that could help you identify when you wanted to listen. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, when when it comes to elections. You know, we can run it back. You know, what were they? What were they talking about? I mean, it's one thing when they start talking prior to an election mm. um, about topics, but but was that something that they they, they cared about a year ago when uh, before the before the vote was on the table? So I think that'll be quite interesting too. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose there should always be um, n- not warning signs, uh, just. Um some sort of thing in 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 the analysis that um, would exempt the use of a word in a different context. Like I'm thinking, housing. Uh, maybe there was a huge governmental inquiry into uh, an MP who was housing an illegal immigrant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so actually, that's what's quite clever about the software that I've developed. So they don't don't just use single words. It's actually particular clusters of words. Mm. Um, so yeah, the software would be able to pick up that difference. Oh, good. Um, uh, because they because it's really it's about distributions of words and clusters of words rather than single word searches. Okay, uh, we've got a minute or a bit, um, but this is interesting because it was big news at the time. Uh, well, relatively, I remember looking at it and being kind of uh, fascinated. Uh, a, yeah. a, a skeleton in Pompeii seemed to be decapitated by a rock falling over. Um, yeah. Not exactly fake news, but this is not what happened. No, but it was, it was a fascinating image, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. I saw it on on social media and, and, and in the news, just of the skeleton sort of half out out uh, uh, under this big um, block that would have been part of a part of a building in, in Pompeii when Vesuvius erupted, um, you know, around seventy nine um, AD. Mm. Um, and so, the, well, the post mortem is in, <laughs> so that's what's been reported this week. We actually we've we've found out. Um, what actually happened? So, so it turns out that the, the person probably wasn't killed by the, the falling boulder. That must have happened at some. The, the boulder must have fallen at some later time uh-huh. because their skull was intact um, and they had all their teeth. Right. Um, so, in fact, there hadn't been an injury. Uh, didn't appear to be an injury from from this 
this big building block. Um, and they, they actually think the uh, person probably died of asphyxiation um, uh, from, the, from the ash. So how did um, the head get separated from the body? Um, so, so they think there was maybe some some uh, construction work later on. So, so people moving things around uh, later that did damage to the to the site um, and 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 disrupted the skeleton. So, um, uh. so, so yeah. So, not damaged during the earthquake. Um, it was uh, it was subsequent excavations and uh, and reconstruction that that, right. that created this rather odd uh, picture. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, so post mortem is in, and. Um, and it will cause a few, a few people to have to revise some of their thinking. <laughs> yeah, um, although badges are lovely. They're the archaeologists' bane. As you know, yep. <laughs> they've got to dig up that's something. Right. Oh God, this was brilliant yep. till last week when a badger shifted everything. Okay. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, lovely stuff. Thank you very much, Sean. And we'll talk again soon, Sean Hendy, yeah, physicist, Auckland University. Cheers, mate. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Astronomer Grant Christie, hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, first up, just a heads up that we have a couple of links on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage that are complementary to what we're going to talk about. Uh, one, Saturn's moon Enceladus, a home for life. The pictures that we have of Saturn's moons and such like things are just so gorgeously high res. It's a beautiful looking thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this was a beautiful image from Cassini. And uh, I mean, if you download the, the full resolution one, you can just see all sorts of fine detail. Um, and as famously know, uh, it's got these ice geysers there's actually heat inside the in the core of this moon that's heating the ocean at the bottom underneath the ice uh, and that's pushing stuff up through these cracks on the surface you can see the cracks that's because jupiter's bending it uh saturn sorry saturn's yeah 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 it's it's sort of flexing it uh the gravity's flexing it and mm. yes you're right so and it's um uh, and the, these guys are shooting stuff out into space. Cassini sort of looked at it and found these organic material in there that, and other elements that are consistent with sort of volcanic vents mm. on the seafloor. Uh, so it's a hot prospect for seeing sort of, you know, possible life. We've mm. got the similar thing on Earth and they're covered with life. Mm. So uh, that's very exciting. And, uh, and, you know, Europa is the moon of Jupiter, which is kind of similar. Um, only Europa, although it's closer, Jupiter's a lot easier to get to in principle, but uh, the, once you're there, you get this huge dose of radiation from Jupiter's magnetic field. It's, it, it destroys instruments. So in terms of life, it looks like Enceladus uh, would be the place to mm. go because once you, you land on the surface and you sit there on the surface and put something down there, then uh, your, your instruments aren't going to get destroyed there. Or maybe get a bucket load of some of that water and see if there's shrimp in it. That's right. Sushi. Yeah, could be. All right, it's a beautiful picture that's there. And also Uranus, a funny old planet, uh, the collision that rocked it. Now, this is a computer simulation. What? Uh, might might not you tell me if I'm right or wrong, but uh, you, you have a look at these simulations. You think, oh, someone's just made this up. It's actually one hell of a lot of computer grunt goes into the couple of minutes that you see of this recreation. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the uh, uh, whole um, 
Uh, it's been known for a long time. I mean, Uranus, when it's going around its orbit around the sun, its rotational axis is rolled right over on its side. So it's like lying on its side as it's going around Barreling. its orbit, like a barrel rolling along. That's right. Uh, and uh, so it's always been assumed, ever since that's been known, that it must have taken a whack sometime in the past with something that pushed us off its axis. There's no way it formed that way. It would have had its axis rotating up and down and in the same direction as all the other planets. So it's obviously had a whack. And um, so now a team with um, sort of a supercomputer have been doing analysis of all these collision scenarios, they've done heaps and heaps of them, hundreds of possible things, and they've found one collision type, a glancing blow, that actually does reproduce a lot of the features of Uranus that haven't been explained to date. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like there's a debris disk, it's got rings around, but they're around... They're not, they're not tilted over. Right. And, so, and this has happened during the planet's formation? Yeah, this was I mean, like four billion years ago when the planets were still forming. So we okay. don't know where, where the impact was. The impact, uh, according to their models, actually survived and we don't know where it is or what it is. It may be absorbed into something else. Uh, but it had to be a fairly uh, grunty sort of collision. Mm. Um, Uranus is about 14 times the mass of uh, the Earth. So, okay. you know, it takes a fair bit of... Is that all? crunch to knock it off its um, axis. Right, okay. Uh, You can have a look at that on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. All right. Also, just by happenstance, uh, album reviews from 1978, albums turning 40. We're having a look at Jeff Wayne's Oh God, It Goes On Forever. But anyway, it's one of the most popular records ever made. I was so surprised. It's um, The War of the Worlds. And it's based on uh, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds yes. and, you know, the Martians, they're coming here. It was such a cultural meme, the Martians coming here. And it, I think fair to say it started from Percival Lowell, this famous astronomer, and he had a good look at Mars and he said there are canals and they must be a struggling um, civilization that are that tr- are trying to get water from the polar regions through these canals into uh, the margin tropics. Yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, the, the idea of canals actually predates Lowell. Uh, the, a, an Italian astronomer, I think Schiaparelli, um, just from memory, uh, he was looking at Mars through telescopes quite a bit earlier. Like, you know, in the 19th century, and he sort of saw these sort of lines and stuff on the surface, and uh, he described them as canali, um, which just means basically lines. He wasn't saying there were canals carrying water. Right. It was Lowell made that extrapolation. So then Lowell is looking at Mars, you know, with the expectation that there was life there, and, of course, your brain tends to help you see things if you really want to see them that well. Mm. Um, but there has been analysis, actually, of... Uh, Lowell's um, optometry. He he had yeah he optometrists had looked at his eyes in the past just uh, during his life and reckoned that you know there were um, sort of a pattern of veins or something on his retina that mm-hmm. uh, would predispose him to seeing things like that. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, so there was elements of wishful thinking and possibly some underlying physiological reasons why he saw them. Right, um, <clears throat> but. Uh, we now know they don't exist, um, and uh, I mean, you know, we. But the we, drawings seem so detailed of us uh, can- canals, don't they? Just yes, well, that's right. I mean, and you sit and stare at these things long enough. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> you know, you can sort of connect all the dots, and they don't necessarily exist. It's you, the brain can do funny things. Yeah.
but that idea of a civilization being on Mars uh, provoked so many cultural things. Well, yes, and, and then we had the sort of the radio broadcasts yeah. and reading of the War of the World. Totally believable, really. And created chaos in North America. As yeah. far as I know, nowhere else, I might say. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder why. <laughs> it's not just Trump. Um, Percival Lowell, also famous for not discovering something, and that was Pluto. I always think of Pluto as Percival Lowell's unfound terrestrial object. Um, it was his colleague, what was it, Charles, Clive Tombaugh, who yes. carried on the work looking for this after Percival Lowell didn't succeed in his lifetime and found Pluto. That's right. Uh, and it, it could have been a fluke that he found it. Uh, he did it by taking photos of parts of the sky and then going back... You know, weeks later, taking another photo, and then you put them in a, in a, and then you compare the photos and see if anything's moved, and that's the sort of uh, the special instruments for doing that with photographs. Uh, so he picked up uh, this object, uh, and uh, it turned out to be what we now call Pluto. Um, it's it, it's just a coincidence, but uh, Pluto's orbit's tilted up. You know, at a big angle relative to all the planets of the solar system mm. and uh, uh, they didn't know that at the time they didn't expect that uh, that the new thing they found would have an orbit that discordant with the rest of the solar system and if you're going to look we for a new planet why. look where all the others are and that's, that's right that so they were plane. looking along the plane this is a planet with the sun and the moon and the, the planets all sort of basically lie in a band around the sky we call the ecliptic plane mm -hmm. and uh, that's where they were looking and it just happens that in 1930 uh, Pluto was close to crossing that plane. It only does so occasionally, like every 150 years or so. So, you know, they were just lucky that they were within a few years of, of that crossing. Um, interestingly, coming up next week on the 12th of July, uh, Pluto will again cross that plane. And so, in fact... Uh, the first time since? The first time since... Uh, Discovering. The, well, since first time since 1931. Right. Uh, so it crossed the plane in 1931, a year after um, Tom Bell found Pluto. Right. Um, it's now coming back, it's halfway around its orbit, and it's now going to cross the plane of the Earth's orbit mm -hmm. once again. And so looking from, uh, if you're out at Pluto, looking back mm. towards the sun, at a particular time you'll see, you would see the moon and the Earth superimposed against the sun. In other words, transiting. So it's like we see the transit of Venus and the transit of Mercury occasionally. Right, right, right. On Pluto, you'd, at this particular time, looking back, you'd see the Earth superimposed uh, on the sun. And so, this, so looking from our point of view, the light that's shining on Pluto from the Earth looking out, mm -hmm. as astronomer, you're looking out at Pluto, mm -hmm. um, that means the light beams are coming straight past us straight to Pluto. They're not coming at any angle. So things on Pluto that would cast a shadow won't cast a shadow. Um, the same effect happens when planet Saturn ends up in that situation. So you, pl planet Saturn's got this big sort of set of rings around it. There's yeah. lots of little particles. Those little particles cast shadows. And if the light's a little bit off axis, in other words, the Earth and the Sun aren't lined up, then the shadows uh, tend to uh, hide other particles. Oh, I see. And so you get less reflected light from the from the rings. Now, at the particular moment when the light's exactly down our line of sight, in other words, the sun's exactly behind us, mm. and it only lasts an hour, a few hours, it doesn't last for very long, right. uh, then the shadows all are going directly away from the particles, and suddenly you can see a lot more particles. 
And so a lot more light is coming back from Saturn's ring. So it's a known effect, um, Seliger effect, Seliger effect, I think it's called. Um, and so for a brief time, if over a period of hour or so, the rings of Saturn sort of look a lot brighter. Now the question is, does the same thing happen with Pluto? Ah. Now Pluto doesn't really have rings, um, and uh, but when you've got a rough surface, uh, then... Th the same thing sort of happens. If you've got a perfectly smooth surface, it's like a mirror, everything comes back. If the surface is rough, you get a little bit of shadow down in the little holes, and uh, so it's not as reflective. Um, but the moon Charon, one of the predictions is the moon Charon, uh, which is its main moon, mm. um, is going to, will get as bright as Pluto, which normally it's not as bright as Pluto. So, for the first time in a hundred and... Something... Right. Yeah, well, this won't happen again for another 160 years. Right, right. Um, we get an opportunity to see Pluto just in this effect. We've got the instruments to do it. So if it's clear that night, we'll uh, have a go and see what, if we can see any change in the brightness caused by this strange effect. Right, OK. So it's very, uh, it's a strange thing. And it's a great couple of years for Pluto. It is. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, after it's passed through this, the plane of the Earth's orbit, it'll, uh, we know we won't see it again for 160 years. Okay. Oh, and just to mention uh, that Mars at the moment is looking magnificent, isn't it? I went out and had a look the other night. It's ridiculously bright. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So it's sort of rising. Uh, not sure what time of the night, but it's 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 pretty well up by um, by about sort of ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. You can see it in the in the eastern side of the sky. Very, it's easily the brightest object out there. So look east, uh, you can't miss it. It's a bright sort of uh, orangey orangey red, red color. Yeah. Um, and and, not um, as red as usual because of the dust storm, apparently. Well, yes, that's right. That's the theory. I haven't. Uh, I'm not sure if your eye would notice it, but in principle, um, the uh, reflected light off the planet is being sort of obscured by the mm. dust that's been blown up by this big storm, which is obscuring the view of the surface of the planet. Actually, and mm. uh, we're kind of hoping the storm will pass, mm. so that we can actually, because on the twenty. Uh, 27th of July um, will be the closest to Mars than we've been since 2003, which was very close to Mars that time. Uh, and uh, that's when you, it'll look bigger in a telescope. If you don't look at Mars reasonably close to that, those dates, then, you know, wait another sort of, uh, you know, 15, 16 years till you get another close look. Ah, okay. We don't get... Uh, the Mars's uh, orbit is not circular, and so when we pass Mars on the inside, sometimes Mars is quite a bit further away. We have to wait till the two orbits are at their closest point, and that only happens every 15 or 17 years. It's a cycle. Okay. So, and in 2003, it was the closest since 60,000 years ago. That's right. In 2003, it was an exceptionally close. Uh, this one's going to be about a few percent further away, but your you, eye wouldn't notice any difference. So mm. it's still going to be a really good opposition. But I see Mars. Uh, presently, it, I, I think, oh yeah, it does look sort of orange, more orangey than red. But they may, that may ex be exactly what we're talking about with Percival Lowell. Someone yeah. told me it was supposed to, well, it, and I'm, my brain is figuring. Yeah. Well, it the out. other thing you have to factor in, of course, when an object's low in the sky, it gets redder. Oh, yeah. because of the scattering of the light in the atmosphere. So um, basically, uh, you, you'd, I think you'd have trouble sort of being sure that okay. it was uh, actually due to the dust storm. Okay, let's go to uh, black holes. The faraway X-ray flare uh, is giving a bit of fuel to the concept of intermediate mass black holes. And, well, 
uh, were they supposed to exist in intermediate mass black holes? Well, they should exist. Astronomers don't know why, but uh, they've they've proved darn hard to find. Oh. Uh, so we know about black holes that are sort of the massive stars, uh, sort of um, you know they're they're a product of a big supernova explosion. Uh, if if a star's say heavier than a hundred times the mass of the sun, a massive star when it explodes as a supernova. Uh, then the core gets crushed into a black hole, and that produces a black hole that's maybe, you know, uh, it could be, you know, a dozen times the mass of the sun. So it's still in the range of a star. Um, and, uh, I mean, we saw these with the merging black holes found by the LIGO detector. Two black holes orbiting each other, each one about 30 times the mass of the sun, they merged and formed a single black mm. hole. And... So those were formed, those were the products of supernova caused by massive stars. Now, we know about supermassive black holes in the middle of galaxies. Our own galaxy's got one that's four million times the mass of the sun. So we, that's what we call a supermassive black hole, and they get up to billions of times the mass of the sun in really big galaxies. So we know about those. They're easy to see because there are already stuffs dropping into them uh, and easy to detect, uh, pretty much. But... The problem has been detecting the ones in between, the ones that maybe have a thousand times the mass of the sun or 10,000 times the mass of the sun, 30,000 times. That sort of range, we've not pr found a proven example of one yet. Not one? Not one. There's a suspicion of one in the middle of the globular cluster 47 to Carni. We talked about that earlier this year. Um, by measuring the motion of pulsars uh, in that cluster... Uh, which can be measured very precisely by radio astronomers and their motions, those motions were consistent with the being a, a massive condensed object in the middle of 47 Decani. You can't see it directly because of a black hole unless something's actually dropping into it, you can't see it. Mm. So you can only see its effect on the motion of objects in its vicinity. So pulsars are exquisitely precise ways to measure the motions of stars. But the... Uh, but that still, it wasn't a slam dunk observation. There's still, you know, questions about whether it's real or not. It'll need to be, you know, more work will be need to be done on that. But so what this uh, group have now found, though, is a a a a a, a, a massive uh, or a, a, a object that is ripping apart a star. So when that's called a sort of a tidal disruption event. So if, in other words, if our sun went close to a black hole, close enough to it, then it would be ripped apart, uh, all its material would be pulled out and a huge amount of light would come out from that event. Uh, and so astronomers have been watching one of these events now for a while in this distant galaxy. It's about 700 million light years away. Um, and they have... Uh, been able to, you know, figure out that it, in order to for a star to be disrupted in that way, this this uh, black hole has to be a um, have a, a mass that's well up in the th tens of thousands of times the mass of the sun. In other words, nothing to do with a star. It is something an intermediate black mass black hole. Mm -hmm. um, how do they form? Um, it's not known uh, in, in detail. That's a hell of a gap. It's a it's a big gap. I mean, we sort of and have a better astron astronomical knowledge. I mean. Well, we because we see these in the middle of the really mass supermassive ones in the middle of galaxies. Then in the middle of galaxies, uh, though, those uh, are sort of pretty well documented. We know lots of those, uh, and they seem. But even now, it's not known whether they were formed during the Big Bang, 
and with a re and they went on to produce get, you know, cause galaxies to form around them, uh, or whether somehow galaxies, when they're after their in the early stage of their development, um, allow not the material at the centre to get so dense that it ends up as a black hole, uh, a ma really massive black hole. So, but the intermediate ones uh, been a unsolved puzzle. Um, this one, this this new data that's been published looks you know, reasonably strong. Um, it's going to come under intense scrutiny because uh, you've got all the people who haven't found one that want to shoot holes in this mm. one. That's the way science works. <laughs> uh, um, and, uh, yeah, so it's still a... Um, but, yeah, so this one, it's estimated to be... has to be more... In order to explain the disruption of the star, it has to have more than about 10,000 times the mass of the sun. So that puts it into, definitely into the intermediate... Okay. mass black hole. So, fingers crossed it'll uh, be validated and we'll finally actually have one we can hang our hat on. Okay. Oh, now China's second space station might fall out of the sky soon. Something has disturbed its orbit or what's going on here? Okay, so it's, um, it's, its first space station came down earlier this year, um, in March I think, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was out of control. China lost control of it and it just you know, they had no control, and it came down and it landed in the Pacific Ocean, uh, fortunately, and didn't land on any sort of built-up area. Mm. Um, however, their number two space station is also now not being used, uh, but um, China doesn't really share too much about uh, its um, space stations. Uh, it's not part of the International Space Station. It had to do its own thing. I think NASA or America has laws against cooperating with China in space. Oh. Something like that. Um, but anyway, so they've got their own space station program. So this is the number two one they put up. And just recently what's happened is they noticed that it got dropped. So it normally orbits at about 390 kilometres up. That's a little bit below the International Space Station's altitude. Um, uh, and they just noticed that uh, it uh, reduced an altitude by 100 kilometres. That's quite a big bit. What pushed it? Was it was deliberately built. I mean, they just, I guess they just fire an engine, mm. slow it down, and it drops down in orbit uh, to a sort of a, a lower orbit, and then you simply, um, it's, it's sat there for 10 days, and uh, then it goes, re, you know, fired the rockets again and sort of brought it back up again. So you can actually move it up and down. And why would they do that? Um, well, given that it's going to be coming down anyway, they figure that, well, it's got fuel left, or some analysts believe that this is the explanation. They've got some fuel left, and they just wanted to test the engine in space. Normally when you launch these spacecraft and they've got engines, you don't know how those engines are going to work in the vacuum of space because they haven't ever been there before. And so you don't really have a good handle on the power output that the engine you built is going to produce. So this was a way to do a controlled test of that engine to understand its performance in space. And if they, because that could well signal that they're going to use the same engine on the next one that's about going to be launched, which is under development, and it's uh, getting close to that. So the um, so China's not worrying too much about they're not sending anyone up there to be in the space station. Why not? Um, I'm not sure why. I think they just they've got another program coming along. You're it's funny they call it the China Man Space Engineering Office. Do it's they? an office. Yeah. Well, space engineering office. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. So that's the theory. Is is why it got brought down. It's gone back up again. Um, and uh, that just waiting in the next 
few months uh, they might decide just to fire the engine again and drop it into the atmosphere and a controlled re-entry. They don't want another uncontrolled one. That doesn't look good. Right. Um, they, we haven't got a phone number where we can ring them and we can say, why did you do that? What are you up to? They, uh, do they not share this? Uh, apparently not. I, I'm not really familiar enough with the details, so I only see what uh, gets done in the press. But uh, they generally don't uh, announce stuff in great detail before mm -hmm. they do it. Um, they don't have a big public outreach program like the Europeans and the Americans and Japanese have, right. um, or the Brits. Uh, so uh, it's, um, yeah, so we'll just have to wait and see. Um, and uh, the, the new one apparently will be a, a much a much bigger one, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, so... OK. How long would it take to cross the Milky Way at light speed? No time at all, because you'd be going at light speed. Yes, yes, if uh, so time, send. time would slow Maybe down. Maybe so send something across. <laughs> That's right. Uh, how, long should your, how long would your spacecraft take? Well, you know, if you look at most of the books, they sort of estimate that the Milky Way galaxy, which is a, a spiral galaxy with a disk, we're living out about um, uh, two-thirds of the way from the centre to the edge of the disk. That and we've was, got quite a big galaxy, book, haven't we? Uh, it's, yeah, the Milky Way is a sort of a pretty good-sized spiral galaxy. Great sense of pride. Um, and, uh, but the... Yeah, so if you look up all the books, they usually say between 100 and 160,000 light years from the centre. Mm -hmm. um, but however, um, or the, or sorry, the diameter, we're about two-thirds of the way out from the centre mm -hmm. uh, in the, that size. But uh, new observations that have been done uh, sh indicate that, the, in fact, there's... Um, stars out well beyond where we thought the disk finished. So the disk is actually bigger, uh, quite a bit bigger than uh, what was thought. In fact, it's now thought it could be up to 200,000 light years across, oh. not... Uh, that's that's nearly double right. the so what, size we, we, it was. We can so, only see these stars since Gaia or something. Yeah, well, the... Well, they they weren't known. Their their properties weren't known, and they're, they're also you can see stars out there. But you know, are they part of the disk? Are they part of the halo? Or what are they? You know, uh. what? Are, and so these are stars that have been studied with some big telescopes. One of them was the huge big telescope near Beijing that I she was lucky enough to visit in 2012. Um, and uh, it's a telescope that can measure the the spectrum of light from large numbers of stars at once. And it's been surveying the sky, and it's found all these stars that are clearly moving in the same di direction as that they're part of the disk. And they also have um, metal or metal contents similar to our sun. In other words, they're sort of stars that are actually you know relatively young stars part of, which are the what's in the disk all the old stars in the galaxy right in the middle and they have far less mm. heavy metals uh, than uh, than what you know the sun's got about one and a half two percent of its material other than hydrogen and helium so these are stars similar to the sun but they're a long way out a lot further out and they're orbiting basically in the plane so these so it looks like the actual true disk of the galaxy is a lot broader than uh, what was thought I wonder if Percival Lowell actually saw the Mariner Valley on Mars and thought that was a canal, because that's quite big, isn't it? Would he be able to see that? Um, well, uh, possibly. I don't know. Uh, it, 
I mean, I've when I've looked at a telescope, I mean, New Zealand's probably not the ideal place in the world to look at Mars uh, because, of you know, we're too close to sea level on the whole. Um, the telescope he was using is at Flagstaff, Arizona, which is a quite 7,000 mm. feet altitude above sea level, so you've got less atmosphere, uh, very chosen for its steady atmospheric conditions. Famous. Very good telescopes that they had there, and so it was all set up, um, you know, so if... You'd be hard-pressed, well, at that time to have found a better place. Probably places like Chile or in Antarctica would okay. possibly be better. All right. Grant, thank you very, very much. Go and have a look at Mars. And you can imagine that when people thought, oh, the canal's there in a civilization, it's looking at Earth. That's Ooh. right. And, With and, envious and eyes. And you'll notice it moving too. If you, you know, watching it over, over weeks, you'll see that it moves quite a lot in the sky. It's a damn good show at the moment. Or oh, so is Jupiter for that matter. Okay, Grant, thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. There was an outfit kind of active, quite very active, in the 1980s and 1990s, a Society for Community Standards, I think they were called, or Preservation of Community Standards. Anyway, they were busy bodies. Uh, why do I bring them up? They tried to get lots of films banned over the years that were turning up at the International Film Festival or Ant Timpson's Incredibly Strange Festival. It really is one of those organisations that think if people see these sort of things, society's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Um, but I also think there's an ulterior motive and it comes from their religiosity. Christian, in this case, I mention them because... Uh, in a little while, not in the next hour, but um, a little after 10, put it that way, Bill Gosden, the director of the New Zealand International Film Festival, will be joining us uh, to talk about the 50-year history of the New Zealand International Film Festival and such events as um, people trying to ban movies, uh, maybe regrets that he's had as well um, about what we really shouldn't have shown that or it wasn't a good thing. But basically, uh, I'm kind of a bit... I don't I don't think censorship really works and I don't think nasty movies, uh, even the nastiest of them, are really going to change society to any great deal. Anyway, okay, I'll get off my soapbox. It's better. New sport and weather coming up very shortly. Hope you're snuggled up nice and warm wherever you may be and enjoying the weekend variety wireless. I will take this juncture to remind you that the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live is a podcast as well and if you subscribe you can just download each hour by hour by hour. I think there are months and months and months worth there and it comes without the ads so I encourage you to do such a thing. It's good for everybody. You can carry around the radio show anywhere you like and play it at your leisure which of course is a good thing. All right enough from the marketing department. Here comes news, sport and weather at the speed of light.